This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine and More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Tanya Mosley with Fresh Air Weekend. Today, actress Molly Ringwald. She became the representation in the 80s of teen angst for a generation after starring in 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Pretty in Pink. I don't like to use the word iconic because I feel like it's it's overused, but they really are. <laughs> Those films are really iconic. Ringwald is now in the new series, Feud, Capote versus the Swans, about the high society women that Truman Capote loved and betrayed. Also, we'll hear from another actor who got her start as a teen, Busy Phillips. In the 90s, she played tough girl Kim Kelly in Freaks and Geeks. Phillips' latest project is the movie musical Mean Girls, where she plays a mom trying to be young and cool. I am cool. And people think I'm cool. By the way, I am famous. (laughs) But you are just never cool to your kids. Ever. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app and you're good to go. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine & More. With so many great bottles to choose from at the lowest price, it's easy to find your favorite Cabernet or a new single-barrel bourbon to try with some help from one of their friendly guides. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find only at Total Wine & More. Curbside pickup and delivery available in most areas. Visit TotalWine.com to learn more. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. B21. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dell Technologies. Dell is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech, like the XPS 13 Plus, so you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Save now at dell.com deals. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Tanya Mosley. My first guest, Molly Ringwald, is having a full circle moment. When she was three years old, she made her stage debut in Truman Capote's The Grass Harp. Now, decades later, she stars as one of Capote's loyal friends in the new Ryan Murphy series Feud, Capote versus the Swans. Set in the 1970s, the series is about the late novelist, screenwriter, and actor Truman Capote and his high society friend group known as the Swans, composed of wealthy wives of successful men. The group implodes after Capote turns the women's real lives into a thinly veiled work of fiction. Ringwald plays Joanne Carson, ex-wife of talk show host Johnny Carson, and one of Capote's most loyal friends, with him until the very end of his life. Molly Ringwald grew to fame representing Gen X angst in 80s films like Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Pretty in Pink. In 2022, Ringwald starred in Ryan Murphy's Monster, The Jeffrey Dahmer Story, playing the murderer's stepmother. In addition to acting, Ringwald is a jazz musician, author, and translator of several books from French to English. Molly Ringwald, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. In Capote versus the Swans, you play Joanne Carson, talk show host Johnny Carson's second wife. And to set that up for everyone, when Joanne divorced Johnny, she became an exile from the Hollywood elite, which meant that she was not one of Truman Capote's swans, these high society women he loved. But as he himself was exiled from writing about this secret world of high society women, he sought your character, Joanne, for refuge. I want to play a clip. Um, and in this clip I'm about to play, Truman, who is played by Tom Hollander, comes to Los Angeles to attend Thanksgiving at Joanne Carson's home after he's been excluded from a socialite's guest uh, elegant high annual celebration. And disappointed, Truman and his boyfriend drive up to Carson's house. 
The boyfriend is angry to have to go to this party and stays in the car, and Truman goes out to greet your character, Joanne Carson. Let's listen. Hi, honey. Oh, hi. <laughs> I come bearing gifts. Ooh, gracias. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Mwah. Mwah. Why is your friend sitting in the car? John wants me to buy him a house in Malibu. Little Prince Pauper is pouting. Once he realizes there's a Manhattan waiting for him, he'll come in. <laughs> When's dinner? In an hour, but there's lots of snacky, drinky things. Ooh. I hope you like nachos and Ooh. tamales. <laughs> Do you know what that is? <laughs> <laughs> I love where he doesn't even answer. He's like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah. (laughs) That was a scene from the new FX series Capote versus the Swans. Molly, what drew you to this role and how did you prepare for it? I was really interested by Truman Capote and I loved, you know, everything about that story. You know, I mean, those, those swans, those women, if you're, you know, I've always been intrigued by fashion and they're all such incredible you know, fashion icons. And I was just really excited that this was being made. I was surprised that it it had never been made uh, up until this point. Can you summarize for us who the swans were? The swans were just basically these very glamorous women who were married to these mostly important businessmen. Uh, and the series has been called The Original Housewives. That was kind of how they, mm-hmm. they marketed it, which, which I thought was sort of brilliant uh, in that all of the, you know, the housewives, of, you know, the real housewives um, are all these women who actually are really successful themselves. Like they now they have, you know, most of them have their own businesses and very successful women. Um, but... When the swans um, happened, it was a different time, and these women were not really allowed to have their own careers. They really kind of lived adjacent to these powerful, successful men. And it's also interesting that some of the women were swans and some were not, you know, like Joanne Carson was married to uh, Johnny Carson, who was a powerful man, but I don't think that she actually was a swan. I mean, actually, she mm-hmm. called herself an ugly duckling, <laughs> even mm-hmm. though she was not. So much of the swans' lives revolve around keeping up appearances and image and maintaining a reputation. Every move is kind of predicated on what will others think. And I thought it was really perceptive that you said um, that the world Capote was part of is very similar to kind of what you see in your kids' lives. You're the mother of two middle schoolers. And when you said that, I was like, oh, my gosh, yes, this is this is very middle school. <laughs> it is. It is. I mean, you know, that that's pretty much what my personal life is about, you know, outside of my career. I'm, I'm at home mothering my kids. And, you know, every every night we do family dinner in our house, which is really thanks to my husband. He's the one that really keeps the family dinner. Um, And it's not easy, you know, when you have teenagers doing family dinner, but it's the one time that we all connect. And, uh, and yeah, almost every family dinner is about the politics that go on at school and which clique and, you know, who's in which clique and, you know, and how to navigate that. And, and, um, you know, you know, when one person falls out of one clique, where do they go? I mean, it's like, yeah. it's exactly like the swans and, and that, you know, it's exactly the same, I think. Well, as you mentioned, um, this is your second time in a Ryan Murphy film, in the Ryan Murphy universe. Do you like working with the same director, producers over and over again? I mean, you had this similar experience in working with John Hughes, the late filmmaker, for the movies that were iconic in the 80s, The Breakfast Club, Pretty in Pink, and 16 Candles. It almost feels like maybe it's it's like following a boss from from job to job in a way. I, I really love working with the same people uh, as long as I like the people, <laughs> yeah. as long as they're they're good, and you know, if I have a positive experience, uh, yeah. I mean, I I stopped working with John after you know the three movies that I that I did with him. I was supposed to do one more, and then it didn't end up happening. Some kind um, of wonderful. 
Yeah, well, I was asked, no, I was asked to do some kind of wonderful, which was directed by Howie Deutsch, who also directed Pretty in Pink. Uh, and he asked me to do it, but I didn't. Um, because at that point, I was really worried about, you know, people never seeing me in another project. So that was my feeling was that I, I had to work with somebody else because I was going to get typecast. But you know what? I got typecast anyway, so <laughs> I should have just kept working with him. <laughs> well, I mean, it, I want to talk to you a little bit about that because you were the poster child for Generation. You were on the cover of Time magazine. You were a household name. But you've done so much more since then. How do you reconcile or deal with the fact that for a certain generation of people, you will always be seen as a teenager? Um, I don't know. It, it sort of depends on the day. Um, you know, there, there's been times where I've been really frustrated by that. I feel like people always think that I'm younger than I am or older than I am. <laughs> really? <laughs> you know? Yeah. The older is interesting. Yeah. Well, older just because, you know, I've been around for so long you know, I, I and I and I also started really young. You know, a lot of times people, you know, I'll, I'm the same age as a lot of people that became famous in the '90s, um, but they'll think that I'm older because I was famous in the '80s. Yes, yes um, that makes sense. Yeah, so I feel like those films are always they're you know they're iconic and they're and they're special. I don't like to use the word iconic because I feel like it's it's overused, but they really are. <laughs> Those films are really iconic. Let's take a short break, Molly. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Molly Ringwald about her new role in the FX series Capote versus the Swans, about the high society women he loved and betrayed. We are also talking about her career. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Caitlin, a teen reeling from her parents' divorce, steals a valuable bird in order to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner that leads her to a new outlook on life. Don't miss Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Rated PG-13. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. Let's get back to my interview with Molly Ringwald. She's in the new FX series Capote vs. the Swans, and she plays Joanne Carson, ex-wife of talk show host Johnny Carson, and one of novelist Truman Capote's most loyal friends. She was with him at the very end of his life. Ringwald grew to fame in the 1980s for movies like Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Pretty in Pink. I want to actually play a clip from Pretty in Pink, which came out in 1986, um, because you've written quite a bit about your experiences during that time period in working with John Hughes and also just reflecting back on the time period as we move forward in time, especially during the Me Too movement. Um, In this clip that I'm about to play... um, This uh, is from Pretty in Pink. You played a high school senior, Andy Walsh, who lives with her working-class father in a Chicago suburb. One of the rich, popular kids, Blaine, played by Andrew McCarthy, falls for you and eventually asks you out to the prom before pulling away at the last minute after being pressured not to date you by one of his friends, uh, played by James Spader. So in this scene, your character Andy confronts Blaine about why he's ignoring her. Let's listen. I called you three times, and I left messages. Yeah? Well, I didn't, I didn't get them. My family, they're very responsible about that stuff, you know? I waited for you this morning. Yeah? Where? Parking lot. I saw you, and I thought that you saw me. No. What about prom, Blaine? 
man, I'm having a bad day. Can we talk later? No. What about prom? Come on, why don't we just meet after school? No! What about prom? Andy, come on. Just say it. What? Just say it. I want to hear you say it. Andy, please, all right? I want to hear you say it. A month ago, I asked somebody else and I forgot. You're a liar! You're a filthy f***ing liar! You don't have the guts to tell me the truth! Just say it! I'm not lying. Tell me! What? Tell me! What do you want to hear? Just tell me! What? You're ashamed to be seen with no, me. No, I am You're not. ashamed I to go not. out with me. You're afraid. No, You're terrified that your great friends want to prove. Just say it! That was a scene from the 1986 cult classic, Pretty in Pink. I was very young when I saw this film, Molly, and I still, I still at that scene, it takes me back to high school and rejection in that same way. I know. (laughs) It actually makes me emotional. It does, huh? It does, because I feel for her, and I also can't help but hear my kids in it. That's what I really love about. I mean, I I have written extensively about the issues that I have with certain elements of the films and, you know, what I don't agree with and the elements that don't age well. But the fact that he would write a movie that John would write John uh, Hughes, yeah. that John right. Hughes would write a whole film, you know, about a girl getting uninvited to prom and how huge that is. You know, in in the life of a teenager, that is that is huge. I know, of course, like hearing myself, you know, I hear my younger voice and, you know, it takes me back. You actually watched, it was The Breakfast Club with your daughter several years ago. Yeah, I did. Yeah. What, what have been your kids' reaction to seeing this younger version and also playing what you say John Hughes really captured, um, the realities of a young person? Um, well, I, I, played it for my now 20-year-old daughter when when she was 10, which was really, I think, too young to watch The Breakfast Club. Um, But all of her friends had seen it, and, you know, she didn't want to watch it at a slumber party or, you know, she didn't want to watch it with someone else. She wanted to watch it with me. Uh, So we did watch it, and I ended up doing a a piece on that, um, Mm -hmm. that experience for uh, This American Life. This American Life, yeah. And and it was really interesting to watch it with her and, and what she got out of it because, you know, at the age of 10, she, of course, there was a lot of stuff that went over her head mercifully because, you know, we didn't have to have that conversation. But what we did get out of it was that it, it had to do with her feelings with us, you know, that I was putting mm-hmm. pressure on her, you know, because at the time – you know, we were having a hard time with, you know, I was having a hard time with, you know, making her do her homework and feeling like, you know, oh, come on, do that. You know, I wanted her to be a certain kind of student. Um, so it was it was really an incredible experience to be able to have that conversation and, and actually feel like it, it changed my relationship with her. And it changed my way of parenting, basically. It changed your way of parenting. Right? Yeah. You were able to have language based on that. That yeah. that movie gave you language. Yeah. And you know, also when I when I watch the movies now, of course, I'm very curious about the parents because the parents are really where they're not seeing. You only mm-hmm. hear about the parents from what the kids feel. Um, but you don't know what the situation is at home. I mean, all of them feel like they're being uh either neglected or misunderstood or outright abused. Um, you know, as John Bender's character, played by Judd Nelson, is is physically abused by his father. Um, so yeah, that was a really interesting um, experience, and and also pretty surreal. Um, but it took a lot out of me, and um, I knew I was going to have to watch the movies again with my now fourteen year old twins, and it took me, um, you know, a long time to to feel like I could do it again. And and we just watched the movies about I don't know three weeks ago. And did you uh, have similar insights? They loved the movie. They didn't take out their phones once, which was incredible. <laughs> it's a big deal. Yeah, that, yeah. I mean, I was I was looking. I mean, the phones were there, and I was like, how long is it going to take for them to pick up their phones? And they didn't. But it was also interesting because they are older. You know the you know sexual harassment that my character Claire experiences. 
you know, which she is. She's harassed by John Bender the whole time. You know, that really did not resonate with them. They could not figure out why I went with him in the end. Hmm. It was it was really sort of confused. Like, they were just bewildered. And it didn't seem strange to me that she goes with Bender in the end, which is interesting that that doesn't seem strange. I mean, I... I I had a great relationship with my father, I, you know, who, who passed away a couple of years ago. Um, so there's really no reason why that should have been normalized for me. But it was. Mm-hmm. This, this idea that, oh, if somebody treats you badly or, or, you know, isn't complimentary or whatever, that that should be the person that you go for. But, but strangely, it was. Um, and that's just not the case anymore. I thought it was just really interesting, these questions that you pose to yourself and to the audience in your New Yorker piece in 2018, where you wrote, how are we meant to feel about art that we both love and oppose? What if we are in the unusual position of having to help, having helped create it? What answers or thoughts have you actually come to about where those movies sit in our culture, especially now having these experiences with your children? Yeah, I do love the movies, and I'm really glad that I made them. It's not black or white, Mm -hmm. you know? Those movies are not perfect, but there is so much good in them. And there are also things that are not good, or there's things that have changed. The lack of diversity bothers me in those movies. Um, Mm. Certainly the, you know, the sexual politics bother me, but they were movies of a time. To me, that is one of the dangers of this desire to erase the past. Mm -hmm. I don't personally believe that you can erase the past, but you can look at it and you can debate and you can can talk about it. And I, I believe that talking about it and understanding it is what sets us free, not trying to erase it. Molly, I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about how you choose what roles to play, because they're so varied. When I look at your career uh, beyond the 80s, you appeared uh, most recently in episode three of season one of The Bear as um, a meeting coordinator for Al-Anon. And to uh, refresh people's memory who's uh, seen The Bear, uh, The Bear is about a chef named Carmen um, in the fine dining world who returns home to run a family sandwich shop after his brother dies by suicide. And Carmen goes to an Al-Anon meeting uh, to try and understand his brother's struggles with addiction and suicide. And in this scene I'm going to play, we hear Molly's character sharing her story. Let's listen. It's hard to hear it, so I just keep saying it. I didn't cause it. I can't control it. I can't cure it. A lot of my life, I thought I was just a victim. Because my husband drank so much, this would happen or that would happen. The short term was always so awful. I thought if I just could throw out his liquor, you know, hide whatever he was on. That would fix it. You can't curb that kind of chaos until the thinking changes, until the foundations change, until the chemistry changes. And it's difficult. I know I played a part in his abuse. And I'm really mad at myself for that. But, but there's anything good that came out of it, it's that it made me realize that the best thing for me to do is just to try to keep my side of the street clean. Instead of trying to fix everything, just remove myself from any situation that is or could become toxic. That was a scene from the FX Hulu series, The Bear. And Molly, it's a very small scene, but it's so powerful. Um, you're only in this series for a short period of time, but how did you how did you come to this and choosing this role? Um, I I was offered that, which you know, I knew that it was going to be a cameo. I knew that it wasn't a character that you know that came back. Um, I mean, she could come back. I, in fact, I hope she comes back. 
Um, but I was sent the script. I was sent a couple of scripts, and uh, and I watched uh, the first episode, I think, but it hadn't aired yet. But I was so taken with it. I was so taken with the writing um, and everything about it. And I, I just said I, I wanted to do it. Um, and and I did, and I'm so happy that I did, and I'm so happy that the the series you know has done well. But I just knew that it was going to be great. And also, it's really interesting that that monologue that I have is one of the only uh, monologues that I've ever had that I didn't change one word, not one word. It was so well written. I mean, even that that one line where I say "but" and then I say "but." You know, that it sounds so natural, but it was written that way. And it was such a pleasure to to do because because it was so well written. And, um, you know, and those kind of opportunities don't come along or they haven't come along a lot for me, you know, where where something is so well written that it makes the acting so easy. When you say that you don't often get roles like this or the scripts that you you're given, um, don't have this kind of depth and meat. What is it? What are the types of roles that are passed across your desk in years past that you just say no? I've been in in mom purgatory for. <laughs> for you went years. from being a teenager to a mom. Yeah. Yes, yes, and I always like to say that I sort of skipped being the sexy aunt, or you know, like I don't know. I really do feel like I went from a teenager to mom, and it was like. All they wanted me to play was a teenager uh, for years, and I felt like there were a lot of parts that I missed out on because I was sort of too young. Like, there were there were a couple of movies that I had gotten close on and that I didn't get, and it was heartbreaking to me, but a lot of what I heard was, well, she's really too young. Mm. Uh, yeah, and then all of a sudden it was the mom, and... And, you know, and I am. Yeah. yeah, And there was nothing in between. And I am a mom. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a mom. I love being a mom, but I want to play somebody who pushes the story along, you know, where I'm not just sort of patting my kid on the head and saying, you'll figure it out, honey. You know, and I have played a lot of those because because I'm a working actress and it's also how I earn my living and, and help pay for my family. So, you know, I I take what is offered, but I, I can't say that that the opportunities have just been, you know, coming my way. Um, you know, so I've also been, you know, creating my own opportunities and, um, you yeah. know, and then sort of taking what I could as an actor. But I feel like that's changing. So I'm really grateful for that. Molly Ringwald, I really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Molly Ringwald is in the new FX series Feud, Capote versus the Swans. Perfect Days is the latest film by the German director Wim Wenders, who's best known for such films like the 1980s hits Paris, Texas, and Wings of Desire. The movie, which tells the story of a sanitation worker in Tokyo, is one of the five Oscar nominees for Best International Feature Film. Our critic at large, John Powers, says, Perfect Days fills you with a good feeling about life. One of the most famous scenes in Japanese cinema comes in Yasujiro Ozu's classic, Tokyo Story. A young woman named Kyoko is grumbling to her radiantly noble sister-in-law, Noriko, about how badly her siblings have been acting. Isn't life disappointing, Kyoko asks, to which Noriko replies calmly, yes, it is. Dealing with life's limitations is the theme of Perfect Days, the latest movie by Wim Wenders, the venerable German director for whom Ozu has long been an idol. Shot entirely in Tokyo, in Japanese, this elegant sentimental fable is Wenders' best fiction feature in decades. Although it flirts with glibness, Perfect Days asks questions about how to live in the face of need, loneliness, and disappointment. It centers on a 50s-ish looking bachelor, Hirayama, played by the great Japanese screen actor Koji Yakusho, whom you will know from Tempopo, Shall We Dance, and Memoirs of a Geisha. Hirayama's life may sound unbearably grim. He works cleaning public toilets in Tokyo. 
But before we go any farther, it's necessary to say that these toilets, all of them real, are spectacular. Some look like spaceships, others like country cottages. The most amazing ones have see-through walls that magically go dark when someone steps inside. You'll wish your town had toilets like these. Anyway, we quickly grasp that Hirayama is not unhappy. He lives a highly ritualized existence, whose routine we soon come to know. He wakes up, spritzes his plants, looks with pleasure at the morning sky, buys canned coffee from a nearby vending machine, and then drives his van off to work, playing old music cassettes by the likes of the Kinks, Patti Smith, and Otis Redding, who's still sitting on the dock of the bay. Once he arrives at the toilets, he silently cleans them with the efficiency and care of an artisan, unlike his amiably feckless young colleague, Takashi. Even as those around him seem lonely or lost, Hirayama takes time to savor life's small beauties, sunlight tickling the trees, children laughing in a park, the invariably friendly greeting at the small luncheonette where he's a regular. He uses an old digital camera to photograph things that move or delight him. All of this is beautifully put across by vendors, with no small help from cinematographer Franz Lustig's crisp images of Tokyo, and the tautly seductive editing of Tony Froshammer, which draws you into the rhythms of a monkish man who appears to know how to live, as they say, in the moment. As he says, now is now. To be honest, Hirayama's days are a bit too perfect, starting with the fact that this handsome actor looks so good in his blue cleaner's uniform, and that the toilets he scrubs are suspiciously unsoiled. By the time we inevitably hear Lou Reed singing A Perfect Day, you may well wonder if Venders has sold himself on a disnified vision of zend-out simplicity, one fed by Western clichés about Japaneseness as a path to spiritual grace. I mean, try to imagine believing a story about a beatific toilet cleaner in Berlin or New York City. Against this naively sweetened portrait of menial work, Venders places shadowy images that suggest life's evanescence. And eventually someone does come along to shake up Hirayama's perfect routine, forcing both him and us to reconsider the life he's been leading. I won't give anything away, the movie's too delicate for that, but I will say that it builds to a scene in Hirayama's van that, to the strains of Nina Simone, thrilled me with its rush of shifting emotions and interweaving of light and dark. This scene is brilliantly performed by Yaksho. Although Hirayama rarely speaks, you see why he won Best Actor at Cannes. Open-faced and watchful, Yakujo couldn't be more touching as a man who's learned not merely to hold himself together amidst imperfect circumstances, but to find joy within them. We twice hear the song House of the Rising Sun, the old folk tune lamenting a life ruined by time spent in a house of ill repute. Yet the movie itself is no lament. Venders once dreamed of being a priest, and here he nudges us toward transcendence. Constantly showing us daybreak over Tokyo, he reminds us that the true house of the rising sun is the world. But rather than bemoan the ways that the world is dark and disappointing, the film suggests that we find and appreciate the transient beauty around us. This may not make our days perfect, but it will make them better. John Powers reviewed the new film, Perfect Days. Coming up, Busy Phillips. She got her start in the 1999 critically acclaimed but canceled show Freaks and Geeks. She's now starring in the new Mean Girls movie. I'm Tanya Mosley, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more, then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2x miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. 
Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Our next guest, actor Busy Phillips, co-stars in the new movie musical version of the 2004 film Mean Girls. It's just one of the Tina Fey projects Phillips has premiered in this year. Next month, the third season of the comedy Girls 5 Eva premieres on Netflix. Busy Phillips recently spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. Busy Phillips has been involved in projects lousy with teenagers, dating back to her breakout role on the critically acclaimed but canceled show Freaks and Geeks. She was 19, playing tough girl Kim Kelly. Since then, she starred in Dawson's Creek, Cougar Town, and Vice Principals. She wins people over with her comedic work on TV shows and movies, but she also does it with her honest, straightforward approach to talking directly to her fans. She does it through social media, her podcasts, and her writing. In her best-selling memoir, This Will Only Hurt a Little, she writes about her childhood and her career, including candid, hilarious, and also heartbreaking stories about the rejection and misogyny she's dealt with in Hollywood and in the rest of her life. She writes about having an abortion when she was 15 and the death of many of her close friends, including fellow actor Heath Ledger. Before we talk about all of that, let's hear her in her latest film, Mean Girls, which is the movie version of the musical based on the 2004 movie written by and starring Tina Fey. All versions of Mean Girls are based on the nonfiction book Queen Bees and Wannabes about the complicated and cruel power dynamics teen girls live with. Busy Phillips plays the mother of the queen bee, Regina George. In this scene, the group of popular girls, which includes Regina, her friends, and the new girl, Katie, are in Regina's room. Mrs. George comes in and tries to make nice with the girls. Oh, Regina, you're never going to believe what I found in your closet this morning. Why are you in my closet? Because I'm doing that Japanese organizing thing where you take a little nap in the closet. <gasps> I found your burn book. <gasps> Katie, this is just like the funniest thing that the girls used to do. Please leave. You got it, baby. But girls, I'm going to be right downstairs. If you need to talk to me about anything, I mean it, deep stuff or boy troubles or blackheads or... Alcohol poisoning. You know I have been through it all. Honey, I am not a regular mom. I'm at cool mom with six O's. Hashtag aging Holly. Hashtag get up. Okay, girls, just have so much fun. (laughs) Remember, these are the best days of your life. It does not get better. Busy Phillips, welcome to Fresh Air. Oh, thanks so much for having me. What a dream. What did the original movie Mean Girls mean to you when it came out in 2004? Oh, God, just that I was jealous that I wasn't in it. <laughs> you know, to be honest, just another job I didn't get. Oh, gosh. Um, no, I loved the original, but I was salty that I wasn't. But I, I couldn't even audition for it because we were filming. I was filming White Chicks. And, um, or I'd already gotten the part for White Chicks, the filming was overlapping, and no shade to White Chicks, although all shade to White Chicks, because at the time, <laughs> when it when White Chicks came out, it was, like, universally panned. People hated it. It was, like, honestly embarrassing that I was in it in the industry and the world at large. Now, perspective is everything, and I am very happy to say that over the years I realized what uh, an actual cult classic White Chicks has become. And I'm so proud that I was in that ridiculous movie in 2004. (laughs) I think what's so funny and sad about the Mrs. George character in the original movie is that she's trying so hard to be one of the girls and sort of relive her high school through her daughters, and her daughter hates it. Also, Mm -hmm. her daughter is terrible to her and to the other girls, and maybe that has to do with Mrs. George. But I wonder what you think about that original character and the way you see her you know, in the new movie, like that, that like being so thirsty, I guess. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting because when Tina wrote the original Mean Girls and Amy was starring as Mrs. George in it, neither one of them, I, I don't even know if Tina had her eldest daughter yet. That's right. I, I don't know. I mean, I know for a fact Amy wasn't a mom yet. Um, 
But what was so interesting to me was just how much I related to Mrs. George in this moment <laughs> as, you know, I, I'm like, I'm a young mom. I am cool. Um, and people think I'm cool. By the way, I am famous. People think I'm cool. But you are just never cool to your kids, ever, as much as you want it. You know, in the musical, in the original musical, um, Mrs. George just has one little snippet of a song, mm-hmm. and it's a reprise from the song that Gretchen sings, What's Wrong With Me? And to me, watching that on the stage in the theater with my own kids next to me was when I just cried. Um, and I feel like I tried to, I tried the best I could to sort of imbue the character with that thing of like she's been waiting her whole life to have girlfriends who love her and she has these girls around her and she's still on the outside looking in and she's like even as a mom what's wrong with me I just think it's so deeply relatable and sad and like it just kind of breaks your heart I know Tina Faye asked you to do this part in Mean Girls, and this is now a few projects that you've worked on with Tina, including your talk show Busy Tonight and the comedy Girls 5 Eva. What's it like working with her on projects, and what uh, does her career mean to you? Because she definitely like came up on SNL, you know, very male-dominated comedy structure. But she also famously works with a lot of her female comedian friends. Well, look, I don't know how I got so lucky, <laughs> except that I'll take it. And I'm so and I'm so glad. I'm so grateful for it. Because I did spend so much of my early career wanting to be in the boys club of comedy and always feeling like, I don't understand why I'm not. I don't understand why I don't get, I don't know. I just don't get it. Why am I not <laughs> in this club? You know, and even to the you know, the point of like Judd and working with those guys again and again for a while. Um, when I was in my early 20s, I, I do remember feeling like, well, wait, why can't, why am I not the girl in Knocked Up? Or what, you know, like what's <laughs> happening here? Um, and then to have Tina come in and, and I was such a huge, huge fan of hers. Um, of course, like her career meant everything to me um like there was nothing better than 30 rock I mean to me I just it made me laugh so hard and I didn't understand how there were so many jokes like so dense it's so (laughs) dense I mean that's what sometimes on girls five eva I'm like I don't even know what this is but I'm gonna say it because I assume it's a joke you know like like, I don't know what it is um but anyway so (laughs) Tina you know to get to work with her because now I've gotten to work with her in so many different capacities, both, um, you know, as a producer who's pitching me jokes for my show, you know, helping us break it and figure out what it is, um, and then uh, giving me, giving me, handing me these mm-hmm. amazing roles. Well, I want to ask you about Girls 5 Eva, which comes back for its third season in March, this time on Netflix. Um, Let's hear a scene from it, um, from the pilot. The group hasn't seen each other in years, and they're living their lives separately. But a hip-hop artist has used an old song of theirs, their main hit, as a sample. And so their music is being heard again, um, and they get a little bit of money for it. Um, it, This scene begins with a clip from the past where uh, your character Summer introduced herself and then the scene cuts to where they are now and Sarah Bareilles' character is visiting your character Summer for the first time in years. Let's listen. I am Summer and the media trainer said to repeat the question in my answer so why don't you introduce yourself Summer. Thanks Carson. I'm Summer. Oh my god. God. Shut up. I thought that was Summer, you're home. Always. Oh, I just heard 
us during Peloton. We are back. What are we going to do? You know, Carnival has a 90s-themed cruise that goes around the Pacific Garbage Patch. Oh, no, 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 and, no, no. no. Uh, I just have your licensing check. Oh. It expires on Friday, so... Oh, and I brought you this baby gift that I've had for you for, like, five ever. That is so sweet. Thank you. You have to meet Stevia, but don't touch her. She's not vaccinated. Oh my God, you guys. <laughs> That's a scene from the first episode of Girls 5 Eva. And I think what's great about the show is how it pokes fun at the music industry or entertainment and how the industry treats both women in the past as well as in the current day. Um, can you share any of this crazy things that were said to you or things that were asked of you? Um, God, so many things were asked of me. I mean, I've been asked to lose weight like a, a billion times. When have I not been asked to lose weight? Uh, well, Tina didn't ask me to lose weight and um, and Paul, Paul yeah. didn't ask me to lose weight. Um, but after that, forget it. It was just a constant stream of losing weight. Uh, minus white chicks, but in the script, it legitimately says they're fat friend. That's how my character is described. I was a size eight at the time. Okay. <laughs> They're fat friends. That's okay. Anyway, um, but yeah, like uh, I was asked, I was told at one point to consider removing, having all of my moles removed on my neck and my face and my body. Um, and I was like, I don't understand that. I think it'll just be really horrific looking scars. Um, my dad's had some moles removed for biopsies it doesn't look great guys i'm not gonna lie um i was told by a head of casting at a studio that i wasn't going to have any kind of film career unless i did a maxim fhm uh stuff magazine uh one of the girl like at the time it was these you know these magazines and the casting the head of casting was like, I get a call from the executive when it comes when the Maxim mm -hmm. Hot 100 comes out and they they have um, they've circled the girls that they want to put in movies. And you're not going to be circled. You're not going to be on that list unless you do it. Now, I want to ask you about Freaks and Geeks, which was your first big TV show. Mm -hmm. It was on TV from 1999 to 2000. Um, it was a show by Judd Apatow and Paul Feig, and it launched a lot of actors' careers. I wanted to play a scene from the pilot, and I believe this might have been the scene that you did when you were auditioning for the role. You play Kim Kelly, a tough girl who has no trouble making fun of people at school and is skeptical of the main character, Lindsay, and she's mean to her, too. Um, in this scene, though, <laughs> you're in the hallway at school, and you're making fun of Sam Weir, who's the younger brother, played by John Francis Daly. A geek. You got a problem? Uh, no. I was, I was just looking at a friend of mine. Are you telling me that I look like a friend of yours? Hey, Kim. I think he likes you. <sighs> Is that true? Do you like me? Do you love me? I, I like you like a friend. I don't think so. I think you like me like me. I think you want to kiss me. Do you want to kiss me? I, I don't know. Come on. Just one little kiss. I'll be your girlfriend. <laughs> In your dreams, geek. Is that my voice? <laughs> That's a scene from the first episode of the show, Freaks and Geeks. Now, you've said, you know, the character Kim, she's had a difficult family life and she was tough and aggressive and maybe that was because that's what she had experienced herself growing up and i'm just wondering what what you related to most about kim kelly because you really capture her you do such a good job with her i think that so much of what i was doing was was just very intuitive and yeah there was a a girl in my high school that 
when I read the character reminded me a little bit of Kim and she scared me so much. And also like the anger. I related so deeply to the anger and I had so much of it. It, at 19, I had so much of it. I mean, I still have so much of it. You know, I like, work, I like still, I'm like meditating and do my therapy <laughs> and like taking my shoes off and trying to ground myself. Like, I do all the things, you know what I mean? Like, um, but I do have that thing and it comes from a lot of different places. But I think that, yeah, for Kim, it, it really comes out of just feeling misunderstood and not having, you know, parents at home who trusted her but I also like really related to Kim in terms of being a person who was smart but that didn't necessarily translate to the subjects that were being taught in school in the ways that they were teaching it in school in a you know just very basic public school system so you know I related to that a lot Well, you had been telling your mom that you wanted to get an agent ever since you were in third grade. What made Mm -hmm. you so sure? Like, what did you love about saying that you wanted to be an actor? Well, you know, I had a lisp when I was little. I was like Cindy Brady, which Mm. is a reference. I don't know. People, you never know. When I I say that now, people are like, huh? Um, Our listeners are older. I know. That's true. That is true. (laughs) But in case you're not, um, I couldn't say my R's or my T-H's or my S's uh, in first grade and second grade. And then I got a speech therapist and I would get like a penny every time I would say, you know, like it it wasn't a lot of money, guys, that I was (laughs) getting for saying my words correctly didn't motivate me. But there was a talent show and my mom thought. I, I was, like, always performing, you know, my whole life. And so my mom kind of convinced me to do this poem in the talent show, which had a lot of the aforementioned letters that were hard for me. <laughs> um, but I worked so hard on it because I, I wanted to do really well and I wanted to make people laugh. It was like a silly poem. And, and I did it. And it felt so good. And then I was like, oh, this is the thing. Everybody has to look at me. And if I do it right, they're going to laugh and they're going to clap. And everybody's going to be looking at me. So that kind of started it. Busy Phillips, it's been so great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And I'm sorry I talk so much. Busy Phillips spoke with Anne-Marie Baldonado. She's now starring in Mean Girls, a musical based on the 2004 film. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. For Terry Gross, I'm Tanya Mosley. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Doubleday, publishers of Why We Remember. Pioneering neuroscientist and psychologist Dr. Charan Ranganath helps readers unlock their memory's full potential. Why We Remember is available wherever books and audiobooks are sold. This is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on the Black experience. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.